Last week we left off kind of uh, hanging things in the air. Hope you've had a great week. I want to come back to a scripture that I've been thinking a lot about. Uh, last week I shared with you the title of a movie, Nefarious. The core underneath it is helping us think about how would the devil work in our world today. And as we look at scripture, scripture talks about this character. Antichrist. I grew up with it. As a, as a kid growing up, I'd hear about the Antichrist. A lot of arts picture him as a monster. The Bible does not. So the Bible is going to help us understand that Antichrist is not just someone, it's someone's. It's a plural word in the Bible as much as it is singular. And as we look at the scriptures, uh, we find these places already back in the Old Testament where God is premonitioning or foreshadowing, pointing us forward to the day in which the Antichrist, the Antichrist will be at work. And I believe that's true of Daniel chapter 11. Uh, I believe it's a, it's a ecstasy, a dream, a premonition that God has given to Daniel to say to him, guess what? Something bad, someone bad is coming. Daniel will never meet this person. He'll die before that period in time. But certainly God is pointing Daniel forward to it, knowing that these inspired words, the words that God has given to Daniel, will be read by the church and perfectly understood by the church in that period of time where this figure who represents the Antichrist appears. Now, what makes it significant for us today? Well, it's the fact that as we, we go back and we read these words out of Daniel, and we think, wow, that's, what, that's just happening so long ago, and yet today they're becoming more and more a reality. I don't think you can turn on your television and watch what's going on. I don't think you can live in our world today and not know that there is there's a lot of just, not just demonic activity, but activity that is anti against Christos, against the Christ. And so we're going to go back. I want to pick up uh, Daniel chapter 11. And I want to go back and just reread verses 31 and 32. We raise some questions, and I want to try to just play those out today. So let me start. I'm going to start today by just reading this scripture. And again, Lord, we just ask for your direction as we look at these words. Here are the words. Quote, Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress. They shall take away the regular burnt offering. They shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Stand firm and take action. So last week we talked about this, that this, this dream that God is, is showing, where, where God is showing Daniel what's getting ready to come, describes a physical person who will come in the year 175 B.C. The name of that person is Antiochus Epiphanes IV. He becomes the king of Greece, 175 B.C. Now, remember with me, when Antiochus becomes the king, he begins to systematically destroy the church. That's his goal. But in a different way. He doesn't try to 
bear arms against it. He doesn't try to burn it down. But he recognizes the best way to destroy the church is to corrupt it. Corrupt it from the inside out. And also to make sure that you place threat against those people who are leading the church. So that you, in essence, control it. So as we look at those words, we raised some questions last week at, at the end of our podcast. We said, well, what, what does it mean that the temple is profaned? What does it mean that the, the regular burnt offerings are stopped? Uh, what is this abomination that makes desolate? What does it mean that he's seducing with flattery those who are violating the covenant? And what does it mean for, for the church of God to stand firm and take action? So I'm going to walk through uh, four things that are specific uh, as we answer those questions. Let's, let's go back and think about what Antiochus Epiphanes IV, a person who really represents what it means to be Antichristos, the, against Christ. He is he's an Antichrist. We wouldn't call him the Antichrist. We'd say he points us forward to the Antichrist, but he is an Antichrist. So he's doing four things. Let's walk through those. Number one, uh, he corrupts the role of the high priest. So the high priest is a role that was established by God for what? The preservation of the temple as a place of grace, a place in which in and of itself, uh, the gospel of God, uh, the person of Jesus is meant to be foreshadowed. So everything that happens in the temple, the sacrifices, the, the furniture of the temple, the acts of the high priest are meant to say, guess what, guys? One is coming who will save you. His name is Jesus. What I want you to see here is Antiochus is, tends to disrupt that. I want to disrupt that. I, I want to own what's going on in the temple. And so one of the ways Antiochus does that is he says, I, I am going to make sure that not God, but I own the high priest. I own the high priest. So how does that happen? Well, in the place of God, Antiochus rises up as a king and says, rather than Israel uh, electing their high priest according to the way of God, the way of scripture, I am going to be the person who appoints your high priest. I will own them. You cannot be a high priest in my kingdom, and he owned the kingdom, without conforming to my political agenda, an agenda bent on turning the temple into a secular shrine that was no different than any Greek shrine of his time. So, one of the first things that Antiochus does when he becomes king is he says, all right, let's own the temple. We're not going to tear it down. We're going to begin corrupting it from the inside out. My first move is to own the high priest. I'm going to put that person into office and they're going to serve me. And we're going to turn that temple into something no different than any of the Greek shrines that exist in our world today. We'll corrupt from the inside out. Here's the second thing he does. Think about how Antichrist works, even in our world today. So add to this Antiochus's installment within the temple of statues depicting Greek gods, including the statue of Zeus, which was placed on the temple altar on the date of December 6, 167 BC. So ask yourself a question. What does it mean for Antiochus to place a statue of Zeus on the temple altar? What's he saying by doing this? He's not saying... 
he, he's not saying, oh, hey, I, I want you all to worship Zeus, per se. No, no, what he's saying is, I'm going to put Zeus on the altar of this temple to demonstrate that there's no difference, there's no difference between Zeus and other gods. All the gods are just the same. So what, what happens in this place, this temple of yours, is not different than the mythology of the Greek people. He's saying to the people, you can believe whatever you want because it really doesn't matter. All roads are going to lead to whatever you really want to believe. He heaven, uh, some good place, all roads will, will lead there. Now, when God is speaking to Daniel, the words that he uses to describe this moment in time, December 6th, 167, are these. He will set up an abomination that makes desolate. He sets it up. Well, what's he setting up? An abomination. To put Zeus, statue of Zeus, on the temple altar is an abomination. It makes desolate. It turns it, it turns the temple into what? Something that, that has no meaning anymore. It, God set the temple out to be what? Distinct. Distinct from the world. You're in the world. You're not of the world. Through the temple, God says, this is how I work. I don't work like the world works. To set the temple up is to say there's not a lot of different gods or pathways to, to heaven or whatever good place you want to believe exists. No, there's one way. It's my way. And the only way to really get to heaven, to have relationship with me, is through sacrifice and all, again, of the sacrifices of the temple point us forward to the one sacrifice that matters, that is effectual, namely the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's tremendously important because, again, it shows us how, how does Antichrist work in the world today? Well, his goal is to corrupt the church from the inside out. I want to own, in Antiochus's case, priests. Antichrist today would say, what? I want to own pastors. And then, to add to that, what do I want to do? Well, I, I want to make sure that the pastors I own make allowance for other religions. Now, they're not, you're not going to go to a church in America where you find statues set up on altars. But the, the same kind of thing is happening right now today. You walk into a church and here's this, this pastor who really is owned by Antichrist, who would say, oh, how many ways are there to heaven? Well, here's kind of what we believe, but there's many ways. There's many ways to heaven. And they've, in a sense, set Zeus upon their altar. Third thing that we see happening here says, then, then there is the removal of the rhythms of worship that made Israel Israel. This, this included not just the removal of sacrifices, but the burnt offerings of the people. This is so significant. Um, this is so significant. Listen again to the way that Jesus describes this to Daniel long, long ago. He says, forces will take away the regular burnt offering, the regular burnt offering. There's patterns that are called worship that are going to get shut down. We're going to take away your burnt offerings. You can't read the entirety of either the Old or New Testament and not see the place that spiritual rhythms have in God's establishment and protection of his people. In the Old Testament, everything revolved around rhythm, from the recitation of the great Shema each morning on the part of God's people, to the festivals that gave definition to each part of life. 
and it's belonging to God, to sacrifices and the sacrificial system. Everything revolved around rhythms through which Israel obtained its, its, its identity. All of this gets disrupted, stopped by Antiochus. No, you will not have those offerings in your temple. Uh, your temple is like, like anything else. Uh, you, you can believe what you want to believe. Uh, Zeus, um, Thor, it doesn't matter. It all leads to the same place. And no, we're not doing those disgusting sacrifices. Notice the fourth thing that Antiochus does. He adds what I'm going to call subversive tactics. Uh, perhaps the most significant of which Jesus called the abomination that makes desolate. So ultimately, this refers to the date of December 16, 167, on which Antiochus defiantly performed the sacrifice of pigs, unclean animals, upon the altar of the temple. It was his way of separating, of watching people's reaction. There should be no possible way in which true followers of God would be able to accept, accept this part, this act on Antiochus's part. This is akin to a declaration of war, and yet many in that time went along with it. You know why? They were afraid for their lives, and they made compromise. But not everyone. Stay with me. Those who embraced Antiochus's deception remained safe, culturally acceptable. But what about those who dared to confront his acts, the secularization of the church? What about those who pushed back against the defamation of God's way of life for Israel? Because there were those who stood firm in this moment in history. There were those who took their stand and would not retreat from God's word and way of life. And not only did they take their stand, they took action. Let me ask you this question. Do you, do you remember the name Dietrich Bonhaver? Does that name ring a bell for you? Takes us back to the year 1933, the year that Adolf Hitler formally became Chancellor of Germany. So from early on, it was the plan of the Nazi regime to de-Christianize Germany. Hitler could not allow the church to exist autonomously from the government in such a fashion that his policies or programs would be challenged on either religious or social grounds. So what did he do? Well, Hitler's party took several decisive actions against the church, much in the same way Antiochus IV took specific decisive actions against the church in his time. So from a public perspective, Hitler proclaimed himself to be what? Christian. I'm Christian. He quoted Jesus as supportive of his policy, but the reality was far from it. Uh, interesting to me, in a report delivered after the war, the Office of Strategic Services published a report it's titled The Nazi Master Plan, The Persecution of the Church. In this report, Hitler's strategy was revealed to include several specific actions, including, number one, the arrest of thousands of clergy. I'm going to own the clergy. No, that, that's what Hitler said. Sounds exactly like Antiochus. The elimination of the church's youth leagues, uh, they started to eliminate things that belonged to the church. Sounds like Antiochus. Defamation campaigns against the clergy and the arrest and elimination of churches' social programs. Uh, in fact, I, I love what Anton Gill writes in a book titled An Honorable Defeat. Uh, Gill states that when you study the strategy of Nazi uh, the Nazi regime against Christianity, it becomes clear that Hitler desired to imprison the church within its own walls. 
It's acceptable for the church to conduct its rituals, but not for the church to have anything at all to do with impacting real life within society. So I look back on this period of time, and it's clear that many, if not most Christians and Christian leaders, did what they went along with Hitler in his policies, fearing imprisonment or even death. And so in this regard, the, the German church looked much like the church in the time of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. But there were some that pushed back against Hitler in a powerful and prominent way. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was such an individual, an influential theologian and author. Bonhoeffer used all of his influence to stand against Hitler's program of euthanasia against the Jewish people. He would rather risk his life than remain silent or compliant in the face of evil. Of course, if you know anything about a story, you know that he was arrested April 1945, charged with taking part in the July 20 assassination plot against Hitler. Not true, but was, that's what he was charged. Ultimately, he was tried and hung. So when I read this section of Jesus' words to Daniel, I can't help but think about Bonhaver. Here's why. When you listen to verse 32, forces appear that profane the temple, take away the regular burnt offerings, set up the abomination, seduce with flattery those, but there will be people who take their stand. In the time of Antiochus, do you remember who led opposition to his policies? His name was Judas Maccabees, the son of a Jewish priest named Mattathias. It was his family who rallied the church, who, who rallied them to be engaged against this king in what became known as the Maccabean Revolt. It was an all-out effort to say, we will not back down. In the name of God, who made the earth and all that it is, we will not be silent. Instead, we'll fight to the death, if necessary, to defend what we know to be the truth. And while the Maccabean Revolt did result in a short-term victory against Rome, what we know is that those who resisted paid a great price for their faith. They are, and I, and I say this without hesitation, part of what the revelation reveals as martyrs of faith who call out from beneath heaven's altar for the return of Jesus. So I want to close with two things today. First, I'm going to read you a section of writing from the apocalyptic book, Second Maccabees, written in an effort to describe how bad things became for the Jews in his time. Secondly, I want to recognize with you what Jesus is trying to do in using the character of Antiochus to foreshadow something greater, something that we call Antichrist. So let me start with a reading from Second Maccabees 6. In our church body, we consider this book to be what we call one of the deuterocanonical books, to say it may not rise to the place of being recognized as the inspired word of God. It doesn't. But it is a book useful for understanding historical context. So in that regard, I want you to hear how bad things became for Jewish believers who lived through the reign of Antiochus IV. Here's two sections from 2 Maccabees chapter 6. Quote, Shortly afterwards, the king sent an old man from Athens to compel the Jews to abandon their ancestral customs and live no longer by the laws of God. The temple was filled with reveling and debauchery by the pagans who took their pleasure with prostitutes and had intercourse with women in the sacred precincts, introducing other indecencies beside. What is being described in Second Maccabees is what's going on as... Antiochus Epiphanes IV systematically 
just destroys what it means for Israel to be in the world, but not of it. Not only does this, this statue of Zeus get put on the temple altar, but now we have people having sex on the altar. Here's the second reading I want you to hear. Quote, Two women were charged with having circumcised their children. They were paraded publicly around the town with their babies hung, killed, hung at their breasts, and then hurled over the city wall. Antiochus made it clear. You, you, start, you go back to the practicing, the practice of, of this Jewish religion, we'll kill you. These women, they had their babies circumcised. We're not doing that anymore. Kill them and fling them over the walls. This is a description of what was happening at the time that Antiochus reigned. Now, I, I don't know what word you would use to describe this. Sick doesn't seem to cut it. Demented doesn't touch it. It reminds one of Hitler and the burning of human beings in concentration camps, along with the profaning of the church in an effort to control it with fear. No, if there's one word that I would use to describe it, it would be the word satanic. That, that's what it is. And it's what Jesus is doing as he foreshadows for Daniel what is to come. Jesus is pointing Daniel to the coming of Antiochus, but there's more than that. I hope you see it. He's pointing Daniel, as well as you and me, as readers, to today, to Antichrist. Is the Antichrist real? Uh, as real as Antiochus and Hitler and Lenin and Marx and Mao Zedong and the list goes on. Which raises the question I want to leave us with today. So, it's 2023. What is Antichrist? Is it a thing? Is it a monster? Is it a person? Is it persons? Can we know what it is? Is it something or someone that's here today or something to come? In simple words, when the Bible talks about Antichrist, what does it mean for our time? That's the subject we'll embark on next week. So I'm going to be praying for you hard this week. I will be. And until next week, my hope for you is that you have a God-sized week.